0: Thank you, Steve. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here uh, at Calvary on this Reformation Day, as has been mentioned, a day that this says a single event on a single day changed the world. It was October thirty-first, fifteen seventeen. Brother Martin, a monk and a scholar, struggled for years with his church, the church in Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by an unprecedented indulgence sale. There's a young bishop uh, who's adding to these church laws. uh, He's bishop over two uh, bishoprics. He desired to add an additional archbishopric over an area, and in doing so, went against some of their church laws. So Albert, the bishop, over two bishoprics, appealed to the pope in Rome. The Pope at that time was Leo X. From the de' Medici family, Leo X greedily allowed his tastes to exceed his financial resources. Enter the artists and sculptors Raphael and Michelangelo. When Albert of Mainz, who was at that time the bishop, appealed for a papal dispensation or to allow them to do this, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with the papal blessing, would sell indulgences to raise money. These indulgences were for past, present, and future sins. Sounds like a steal, doesn't it? Throw money in advance into the pot. It's going to be a bad weekend. Here you go, church. All of this sickened the monk Martin Luther, as you can imagine. Can we buy our way into heaven, he asked. Luther had to speak out. But why October 31st? Well, November the 1st held a special place in the church calendar as All Saints Day, On November the 1st of 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg, Luther's home city. Pilgrims would come from all over, genuflect before the relics, and take hundreds, if not thousands of years off time in purgatory. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right. So Martin Luther, a scholar, took quill in hand, dipped it in his inkwell, and penned his 95 Theses. These were intended to spark a debate, to stir some soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church. The 95 Theses sparked far more than a debate. They revealed the church was far beyond rehabilitation, and instead it needed a reformation. And the church and the world would never be the same. One of Luther's 95 theses simply declares the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone is the meeting of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Mere tradition often brings about systems of works, of earning your way back to God It was true of the Pharisees. It was true of medieval Roman Catholicism. Didn't Christ himself say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. What is Reformation Day? It is the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of darkness. It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led to Martin Luther... John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's Word as the only supreme authority for faith and life, and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors, it led to hymn writing. In congregational singing, it led to the centrality of the sermon and the preaching for the people of God. It is the celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical and cultural transformation. So we ought to celebrate Reformation Day, because this day reminds us to be thankful for our past, and to the monk-turned reformer. What's more, this day reminds us of our duty, our obligation to keep the light of the gospel at the center of all we do. So, happy Reformation Day to you all. If you would take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, this morning we'll be in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23. Just a comment on what I just read. That is not my original piece, but borrowed from someone else. There was a statement in it that said that the Reformation kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. All too often, there is a misnomer that theological accuracy leads to dryness. People joke about seminaries being called cemeteries. Unfortunately, in places they can, but it ought not to be the truth. The case ought to be the more that we know God's Word and the gospel, and we marinate ourselves in the truths of Scripture, that we are far more likely to be going out on missionary endeavors, far more likely to desire to spread the gospel with those around us. It is not merely just something we need to be conjured into, we ought to go do these things and guilted into. But if somebody doesn't have the joy of sharing Christ or of serving wherever God would call them or sharing the gospel with those around them, it's not because they need more guilt, but because they need more understanding. More understanding of the gospel will not remain the same in a person's heart. It will continue to work by God's grace, transforming them, semper reformanda continually reforming them more into His glory and His likeness. We are grateful for the powerful and living Word of God. Would you stand with me as we read in honor of Holy Scripture? Matthew chapter 16 and beginning in verse 13. We'll read down through verse 23. God's Word reads this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, But my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> How many of you could confidently say that you are able to count up to 100? Go ahead, raise your hand. How many of you? That's most of you. Congratulations. I would be right there with you. I didn't raise my hand, but most of us. Now, how long did it take for us to learn how to do that? You probably don't remember when you reached that milestone, but it probably took years. You're probably five, six, seven, maybe eight, nine, ten. That's okay. It was something that we learned and something we use every day. We use numbers every single day, we're counting change, we're dialing on our phone, we're looking up something, we're getting a percentage of how much to tip the waiter or the waitress. It took us a long time to learn, years, in fact, and yet something that's so rote that we use, simple, we don't even think about. There was a turning point, though, when it clicked, when we realized that we can count by tens, and if we can count by tens, we can count to a million. We don't need, if we can count up to 10, then we've got it from here. This passage this morning in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16, is just that turning point. It's a turning point where it clicks. It clicks in the disciple's mind. It begins to shift from Jesus as one who has come in the flesh and is ministering to people and healing people and doing ministry amongst needy, sinful people, among whom he has come to redeem, and it makes this marked shift. Uh, Another gospel author makes this statement, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And here Jesus shifts, and all of a sudden, the Messiah, Christ, you are the Christ. And that declaration, verse 21 that we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples what must come to be Here, as Jesus is interacting with his disciples, he asks them questions about his own identity. And as we see in this section, blessed are those who accurately identify Jesus. That's our first point this morning. Walking through this portion, we'll look at one here in this section, and then in verses 21 through 23, we'll see our second point. But here, Jesus will make it very clear to Peter and to all the disciples for whom Peter is the spokesman here and often in other places as well. Jesus, uh, Peter will speak up for others, but Jesus makes it very clear, blessed are those who accurately identify him. There's a strong blessing for us when we get Jesus right. When we understand who he is and his identity, as Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We'll see Jesus is the Christ, the one who's the promised Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He's also, as he goes on to speak to Peter, the Lord of the church. Now, it's not something that Peter gets in identifying Jesus, but Jesus states as he then turns to identify Peter. In this passage, you have Peter speaking these great truths about the Son of Man and who He really is. And Jesus speaks incredible truths to Peter and who He is. The part that Peter will play in God's story that will continue on from here. Here, Peter is showing himself to know who Christ is, and yet we will see between these two sections... And these two points that we'll look at, an inconsistency in Peter. Peter shows an inconsistency between what he professes and what he embodies. He knows Jesus is the Christ, but he does not let Jesus be the Christ. So, blessed are those who accurately identify Jesus. Point number one, Jesus asks the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is. This term, the Son of Man, is one that Matthew uses frequently of Jesus, a reference back to the Old Testament and the prophet Daniel. Who do people around say, what do you guys think? What's the survey, fellas? What do the people say that I, who do they say that I am? And, well, there's lots of answers. And so the disciples begin to give him the answers that people are saying. Some people say, you're Elijah or John the Baptist Others say the prophet Jeremiah. And some of those we can see why they would reference John the Baptist, Elijah. Elijah did a lot of miracles, raised people from the dead, provided uh, for uh, the widow and gave her sustaining life as her food jars did not run empty and her oil jar stayed full. God continued to provide miraculous events through uh, the John the Baptist and his preaching of repentance. And so maybe it's by message or by method. You look like, you act like maybe it's John the Baptist or Elijah come back in the flesh, reincarnated as this Jesus. We can understand John and Elijah, but why single out Jeremiah? What is it about the prophet Jeremiah that makes him stand out maybe more so than other prophets? They could have picked any of them. Maybe it was Jeremiah because he, like many other prophets, but he specifically incurred fierce hostility because he predicted the downfall of Judah, the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, one who saw what God wanted to do, heard God speak to him, Jeremiah, this is what's going to happen to the people of Israel. And he incurred fierce hostility. You remember multiple times, Jeremiah is either thrown into a pit or beaten. As a prophet who suffered, his message was not well received at all. He was a party pooper and the kings didn't like him coming with his messages. So some say that you're like Jeremiah. You come and preach a message of the downfall of Israel or the destruction of the temple. Remember, Jesus says... This temple will be destroyed, and in three days, I can build it again. And they, they mock Him. This temple took us years to build. How can you say in three days you can raise it back up? And Jesus, of course, referring to His body, but being one who predicted things that would come that were not of encouragement. This is not what the people expected of the Messiah, The people expecting the Messiah were expecting one who would come and would get them out from under the thumb of Rome, one who would come and release and redeem and bring them victorious over their enemies. The questions that Jesus gives are addressed to the group of disciples, but it's Simon Peter, their leader, who answers bluntly. When Jesus turns the questions from, who do the people around say that I am? Who do you guys say that I am? You can imagine as Jesus addresses his own disciples who, in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at guys who don't really have a lot of faith. Guys who, when Jesus has already twice fed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fish, turned and all of a sudden were worrying about, where's our bread? We forgot bread for our meal today. You can imagine Jesus has to be puzzled. I've provided food for thousands. You guys are worried about bread instead of whatever it else is that Jesus would have expected of his disciples at this point, but makes a statement of their little faith. And here, Peter shocks us, doesn't he? He does me. As I'm reading and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? To see the answer that Peter gives He accurately identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. When God promised that one would come, remember, we call him the snake crusher, one who would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And this one was going to be a seed of Eve. One, when you trace the genealogies, would find him to be from the tribe of Judah, This one who would come, the promised Messiah, who would ransom Israel, the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. He is the promised Messiah. You are the Christ, Peter says. You are the Messiah. The the title Messiah was a title of hope. Peter cannot imagine that this hope is one that includes defeat and execution. He makes that clear in the next section as Jesus begins to tell them that he must suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders, Peter can't handle it. That's not the way. That's not the route of the Messiah. That's not what we're expecting. That's not what we believe the scriptures to have taught. The Messiah is the one who is to come. The Messiah is the human deliverer that God was expected to send to his people. You can just imagine there expectation and hope that the disciples have you in declaring you are the Christ. You are the one that we have longed for. In just a few verses, Peter will come face to face with his view of the Messiah, his expectation of the Messiah, and the biblical view of the Messiah. What did Peter and the disciples think the Messiah was coming to do? And what he actually came to do are two different things. Sometimes we can fall into that trap, where we believe the Scriptures to be saying something that they often are not. We insert words or remove words. We add our own thinking or opinion. We forget where we're at in Scripture and what part of the story we're in. We forget what genre this is. We read certain parts of Scripture. We take them literalistically instead of literarily, instead of looking at genre, or we forget that God knows the beginning from the end and that when God writes, he knows how this will all turn out, even if we can't quite comprehend the incomprehensible God. Peter says in declaring, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. He also declares, you are the Son of the living God. This phrase is in addition to, not you are the Christ, which is, you are the Christ The son of the living God. These are two things, parallel statements, but one on top of the other raises this position of Jesus, you are the son of the living God. These are theologically overloaded phrases that Matthew uses here, which have important titles for Jesus. Peter is making huge doctrinal statements about the person of Jesus, the one who stands right in front of them. Jesus had prayed earlier in Matthew regarding the relationship between the Father and the Son, and maybe it's Peter who remembered it, who heard Jesus' prayer at that time and remembered the statements he made, so that here he's referring to him as the Son of the Living God." Jesus prays in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. "I thank you, Father, Lord of Heaven and Earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children yes father for such was your gracious will all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him lots of theology built into those verses but what we see as pertinent here is the relationship of the father and the son together working by means of redeeming a people that they know together. They know of one another together. There's an intimacy of relationship of the Father and the Son together. And Peter calls Jesus the Son of the living God, the eternal Son of God. If God is not living, then God is not God. Jesus is connected to the dynamic and living God of Israel's faith and history, and Peter is acknowledging the Messiah, but also the eternal position, the sonship of God himself. You are Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah, and you are the Son of God. And in so saying that, you are God himself. He's referencing Jesus' deity and Jesus' messiahship. These are things that Jesus makes comment. Blessed are you. Blessed are those who accurately identify Jesus and who he is. Those who are able to say who Jesus is. Blessed are you who have come to faith in knowing the identity of Jesus. Blessed are you. Because you have not revealed this of your own self. But my Father in heaven revealed this to you. Blessed are you. Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. And Jesus then turns and in issuing identity statements about Peter, makes reference again to a third characteristic of himself, that he is Lord of the church. This will actually be more weight words are given to this section than any other in this passage, where Jesus begins to speak and his identifying of Peter Jesus now turns to speak accurately, prophetically about Peter, and also of himself and his bride. Notice as we continue on, Jesus says in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter. He's known as Simon. Jesus gives him the title, the nickname Peter, earlier, but his name is Simon. And Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter. It's no news for us who've been able to read other parts of Scripture in the Old Testament, even especially, we find a lot of people have their names changed by God, don't they? There's Abram who becomes Abraham, Sarai who becomes Sarah, there's Jacob who becomes Israel, there's lots of people who God sees to identify as his people and does so by changing their name. Here, Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. He calls Peter by his whole name, Simon Peter son of Bar Jonah. Now there's no connection here seemingly so that we know of to the Old Testament prophet Jonah or any other reason other than by using the name Bar Jonah that there might be a different Greek variant to the same name son of John which Peter is known by in John chapter 1 verse 42. He is called, by his full name, Simon, son of John. And so it could just simply be another variant that refers to him here as Simon, son of or Barjona. Jesus gives him the nickname of Cephas or Peter, which means literally rock. He calls Peter the rock on which he will build his church. His name Petros literally means stone or rock. It seems clear that the name is chosen for Simon, prophetically because for this moment, and because of who he will be for the church, Jesus is identifying Peter now as one who will do and will act accordingly in regards to his people, in regards to his bride. The name Petros is not a known personal name in the ancient world. And so Jesus gives him a unique name that means stone, rock, To give it figuratively what Jesus is going to do through Peter and his disciples, through the apostles. This accurate identification of Jesus that Peter gives was brought about by the gracious revealing work of God the Father. Peter didn't do it on his own. Jesus says, My Father in heaven revealed it to you. Peter and his disciples were just having trouble worrying about too much bread, as we mentioned. They had little faith. And now he's spouting great theology of the person of Jesus and his identity. It is only the work of God to give him this knowledge and the words to speak here, as Jesus says. Jesus asserts himself as the Lord of the church. He is the one who sets the foundation on Peter. Jesus is the one who says on Peter, I will build my church. Jesus is the one who speaks in possession of the church. You notice he uses the phrase, my church. He equates his speaking and revealing with what the Father has just revealed revealed to Peter. So as the Father revealed to Peter the identity of Jesus, Jesus says, now I say to you. Jesus speaking in the same way that he does in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this, but I say. Not as taking away what was said before, but as bringing it to its fulfillment. Here, Jesus says, and I tell you, and Jesus reveals to Peter what it is that he will do. I will do this. I will build my church. I tell you, you are Peter. You think your name is Simon. Your name is Rock, because on you, I'm going to build my church. Just as God gave the words to Peter of the identity accurately of Jesus, so Jesus speaks of Peter And of himself in ways speaking of what this church will look like, will be built on, that it will not fail. He states that he is confident that Jesus is the church's protector against the gates of hell. And speaking of Peter's identity, he says Peter is the rock, the foundation for the church. This brings about allusions to other places where we hear Jesus speaking of a rock and of wisdom. Matthew chapter seven, verse 24 says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the petros, on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. Interesting, the items here that are mentioned in this Phrase of Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, of wisdom, of building on the rock, but then also integrity, of living consistently with what you believe. And that being a very issue here in these two texts that come up in the text that we read this morning. Jesus is also referred to as the foundation stone in other parts of the New Testament. Peter is the leader of the disciples. This is clear. As we see him lead the disciples after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, it's Peter who takes the initiative to lead this new body of the people of God through faith. As Samaritans, Gentiles are added to the church, it's Peter we see preaching. It's Peter that we see standing and making a defense. It's Peter that we see leading this group of believers, the people of God, the kingdom of God. Another synonym for God's people. He's leading the kingdom of God into the first century and so on. It's Peter and the disciples who was also seen as the foundation. Jesus is called the cornerstone. One author writes, all the apostles constituted the foundation with Jesus as the cornerstone. But as a matter of historical fact, it's on Peter's leadership that the earliest phase of the church's development would depend and on that personal role, fulfilling his name, Rock, is appropriately celebrated by Jesus' words here. Peter even references this issue of stone and cornerstone and the building of God's people in one of his own letters. You might be familiar with the passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter cannot accurately identify Jesus on his own. He needed the Father to reveal that. And Peter cannot, certainly cannot, build a church on his own. It is the Lord's church. Peter has been given the reins of leadership, humanly speaking. The image of a building is one that is often used in the New Testament of a church. But the church has always been the people of God, not merely a building. Jesus as the cornerstone, the apostles as the foundation, and it's the people of God as the building. The word ekklesia, which is the Greek word for church, is a gathering or an assembly, not a structure or a building. Jesus says that Peter is the rock, The foundation for the church, Jesus as Lord of the church, the one who builds it, the one who sustains it and protects it, can issue who is the foundation. Jesus also says here, as part of his accurate identity of Lord of the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against its church, against his church. When Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that does not mean a building will stand forever. But the people of God will not succumb to eternal death. It seems like strange imagery, I think, to think of gates as being a weapon. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. As though gates themselves are used as an offensive weapon, the gates will not prevail against the church. But it's not as a weapon as much as a destination. The people of God will not be imprisoned behind the gates of hell. Jesus, as Lord of the church, will not let his people be destroyed. He will not let them be taken from him. He will not let them be imprisoned by death. Jesus, the snake crusher, the Messiah who has come, will defeat death. He will crush the head of the serpent. And all who are in him will be raised forever to live with him and not imprisoned by death. Jesus can be confident that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, against his people. Some have taken this and changed it from an imagery of death, the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, and romanticized it so that it looks a little bit more like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And we Christians are fighting the forces of darkness, and we will storm the gates of hell and not be defeated. As if we are the ones to go on the offensive to make sure that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, we will charge victoriously into battle. Maybe we've watched a little bit too much of the Lord of the Rings or read too much stories like King Arthur, where instead, if Peter needs God to give him accurate identity of Jesus, and if the church needs Jesus to establish it, then it is again Jesus who is the champion for the church over Satan, hell, and death, and not our storming, but Jesus is protecting and keeping and granting us life in himself. It is true that believers are at war against demonic forces regarding spiritual battles of temptation to sin. But this is not that. Another point, looking at Jesus as Lord of the church, as he continues on, looking at Peter and the role Peter will play, there will be binding and loosing on earth, Jesus says, that corresponds to binding and loosing in heaven. If you've been tracking all along with the passage as we read it, you might have become confused at these verses, if you're anything like me. Jesus is speaking openly to Peter of Peter being the foundation for the church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. And then in verse 19, he speaks to giving Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a lot of debate on what it is that is being bound and loosed. These eternal ramifications that what Peter says, this person is in the church or is out of the church? Is Peter literally the gatekeeper of heaven? Now, many people have thought this to be the case, right? That we're going to die and go see St. Peter at the pearly gates? Ask him our questions, or he's looking at a list of names to who to let in and who to let out, and a lot of jokes have Peter at the pearly gates. And we're gonna ask him these questions. And is this where this comes from? No, this verse is not speaking of the afterlife, but of God's rule among his people on earth, in the church, of God's rule of his people in his place, under his means of blessing and command. This is, i.e., the kingdom of God. God is speaking to Peter and giving him the keys of the kingdom because the kingdom has come. And Peter is one who is stewarding the people of God until he returns. But guess what? There's a problem because Peter, unlike Jesus, does not yet live forever on earth. Peter can't sustain his life just like he couldn't accurately identify Jesus on his own. And so there's other people who will come after Peter, who will be also stewards of the people of God, stewards of the kingdom of God. We'll look at this a little bit more in depth, and we'll bide our time here, but we'll look at it more in depth later when we look at Matthew chapter 18. But Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18 begins to speak about a brother who sins against you, and one who doesn't repent. You go to him and ask him to repent. He doesn't repent. You take another witness with you and he still doesn't repent. What do you do? Verse 18, of Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right before that, Matthew says, If he refuses to listen to them, to those two or three witnesses with you, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are serious ramifications to the binding and loosing that God gives the authority, the stewarding of, to the local church. These have huge ramifications for our life of holiness. How here, as we're seeing, Peter has the ability accurately to think theologically about the person of Christ, but his practice is not consistent with his beliefs. We'll see that in the next section as we continue to move on. Jesus tells his disciples before here, as we transition, verse 20, to tell no one of his true identity. This is consistent as Jesus has not Wanted others to know of his healing or the miracles that have happened, but here and more significantly, he doesn't want anyone to know that he was the Christ. Don't tell anyone my true identity. Why? In the same way that the Father has revealed it to Peter, Jesus is confident, as Jesus himself does not reveal fully in explicit language that he is the Messiah. In the Gospels, Jesus is confident his Father will reveal that to those to whom he chooses. Exactly what we read back in Matthew chapter 11 earlier, when we looked at the language of son and father together. Now, these are hard things sometimes to think about, and things that sometimes make us want to deny what we see in the Scriptures. This is exactly what Peter, we move on to looking at. Blessed are those who accurately identify Jesus. That's what we just looked at. But this verses 21 through 23. Beware those who desire to hinder the mission of Jesus. Beware those who desire to hinder the mission of Jesus. Verse 21, from that time on, this is the marked shift. In the ministry of Jesus, where he has turned his face towards Jerusalem and to his coming crucifixion, Jesus begins to speak clearly that he must suffer and die. He must be killed because he will rise again. But these things must happen. And as we'll see, Jesus makes clear to oppose God's mission is to oppose God himself. God's will will be done. It must be done. He must do these things. You you look at the language there that is given. He began to show his disciples that it is necessary, that he must do, must go about suffering and dying. It's necessary for Jesus to be rejected, to suffer and die, to rise from the dead. This is his mission. This is why he's come. And Peter, like us sometimes, can't fully understand the purposes of God's will at all times. We cannot comprehend the incomprehensible God. And yet our belief in who God is must not allow us, when we don't understand, to disobey. To take something out of context, to thwart the scriptures, or to not do God's will because we can't understand what God is doing in our accurately identifying Jesus by means of the Scripture, by means of other helps like creeds and confessions and councils that have been around for hundreds of years, some 1,800 years, by learning more and identifying accurately the person of Jesus when we come to something we don't quite understand in the Scriptures or seeing the purposes of God's will made clear in His Word, We have to submit to the word of God as our authority, just like Martin Luther was desiring those who would follow the Reformation teaching would. You see, there's orthodoxy and understanding accurately truths about who God is and his ways, and there's orthopraxy that says we will accurately obey the truth that we believe. Your doctrine must match your life. Here Peter believes who Christ is and yet here when he hears something he doesn't like what does he do Jesus I don't like that at all I must submit though to what you're teaching us No he yanks him aside and rebukes the Messiah You are the Christ he's just shouted I mean you want to put all of those words in like caps and read it like Tim read from Psalms 146 earlier today That's beautiful how he's reading it. You want to shout it in that same way. You are the Christ. And two minutes later, Jesus, you are not the Christ. You can't do this. He has a misunderstanding of the identity of Christ fully. If you were to truly believe who Jesus was and that he was who he said he was, and he will do what he must do, then Peter would have gotten behind the mission of Jesus But instead, he finds himself in opposition to it. Far be it from you. This shall never happen to you. Who now is in charge? Who now has asserted himself to be the Messiah? The coming one, the son of the living God, who now is seated on the throne in his own mind? Well, Simon Peter. Simon Peter is now the one who is saying what what will happen. And Jesus says, To him, get behind me, Satan. Earlier, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. God has revealed this to you. A few minutes later, it seems, get behind me, Satan. Your actions are not holding to what you believe. One of these is out of sync, your orthodoxy or your orthopraxy. Your practice is not matching what it is you have just ascribed to. Keep a close watch on yourself and on teaching. Paul writes to Timothy, Keep a close watch on yourself and teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close watch on yourself, on your life, your way of living, and on what you believe. Too often we can fall into the ditch of one or the other and begin to want to dive right into just doctrine And we don't always take care of our life and how we're living, our sin, and our need for repentance regularly. That's the first thesis, a proposition that Martin Luther put on the chapel door. When Jesus calls someone to himself, he determines that the life of the Christian must always be about repentance. Not just repenting once, but a life of Repentance. Persist in this, Paul writes to Timothy. Continue on in this. It's not a one-time thing. If I get my orthodoxy right, okay, I know who Jesus is. He's the Messiah who came and gave his life for us. Great, that's all I need to know. Persist in that. And persist in keeping a close watch on yourself. Even when things come up that you don't fully understand or say in the scriptures, this can't possibly be true. There's a lot of doctrine that comes out of the Reformation, some of which people go, I love that. Yeah, sola Christus, Christ alone, by faith alone, sola fide, love those things. Soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone, wonderful. Don't always like sola scriptura. I don't always want to submit myself to God's word and what it tells me I should and shouldn't do. And some of the same people also want to buck against some of the other reformed teaching that came out of the Reformation, that came from sola scriptura, sola fide, sola Christa, sola Deo Gloria. And when we see teaching that comes and say, the scripture says this, I either submit myself to what scripture says, or I find myself opposing God in his word. God has revealed this to me by means of his word. What is it that I'm desiring to do? God, by His Spirit, is leading me to obey and do this. Am I going to believe it? Am I going to obey it? Is our orthodoxy, what we believe about Jesus, leading us to accurate obedience of Jesus? Or are we caught up in one or the other? May we as God's people, like Peter in the first section, identify Jesus confessionally and accurately. May we as God's people not be content with a junior varsity, as someone has recently said, junior varsity definition of Jesus. But let us go further to know him accurately, desiring to know him fully. There's one creed that I want to mention. It's the Chalcedonian Creed, a creed that was written and established in 451. That's a long time ago. Thankfully, we can count to 100, but can we count to 1,579, I don't know, 69, 79. Someone's going to correct me later. I know it. And there'll be like 11, okay? But a creed in 451 that was established so that there would be an orthodox view that Christ has two natures, human and divine, that are unified in one person. These things are absolutely crucial. It says, we then, following the Holy Father's, All with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin." begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, think all those words mean the same thing, right? The distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, concurring in one person, one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same son, only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us. And the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Too often we can say, that's difficult. Those are big, hard words. And yet being able to look into creeds and confessions that God's people have spoken, have looked at, have studied to know Christ more. May we not just be satisfied with a simple orthopraxy that denies the need for orthodoxy and growing in our understanding of our confessional beliefs in Christ. May we not simply say, WWJD, what would Jesus do in any situation? Well, do you even know who Jesus is? And are you able to accurately confess him to others when called upon? We want to confess We want to have accurate confessional beliefs about Jesus, identifying him confessionally, growing in our ability to understand the full-orbed Christ of the scriptures, so that when we come to things that are difficult, we obey with integrity instead of disobey because we are delinquent in our understanding of who Jesus is. May we obey with integrity Tim Chester writes in a book, Total Church, the problem is not an intellectual problem. The problem is hearts that refuse to live under God's reign. It's a relational problem. And if it's a relational problem, it requires a relational apologetic, obeying with integrity, walking in wisdom toward outsiders, allowing them to see that the truths we believe, we live. Our orthodoxy is not merely dry and crusty and full of hypocrisy, as often can be the claim given to the church. But our desire is to know Jesus and to obey him. Peter found this out to be so true. In one instance, he's being identified as blessed because you have identified me accurately as my father revealed to you. And in the other hand, he's being Watch out, beware of this Satan, this one whom, who comes opposing me. You are setting your mind on the things of God, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. May we find ourselves, our conduct, our beliefs, that others would see them as honorable. So that as Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, interesting, this is Peter writing this. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May those around us, those that we know, our family, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, hear what we believe as we confess truthfully the person of Christ. Know what it is that we believe and may they see the same true in our practice. May we identify confessionally and live with integrity. Would you join me as we pray and asking the Lord for his help? Our Father, we are thankful this morning as we often are, but we are thankful this morning as we think of those who have gone before us, who were willing to give their lives to confess accurately who Jesus is, to call others to submit to the authority of scripture and some who did give their lives. We can read of them and be encouraged by their faithfulness to you. That even when the truths are not welcomed by others, or we can't fully comprehend all that you are and all that you do, that we desire and delight to still obey. Father, would you help us? Drive us into the scriptures. Drive us into knowing Christ. The full-orbed Jesus who has come and given his life for sinners, who stands as the only hope for all mankind who apart from Jesus are lost in their sins. May we come to know and confess him. May we desire to grow and continue on in these things. Jesus, would you continue to help us to live according to what we hold true and dear, what we believe. God, would you grant us grace that when we don't, that we would be quick to repent. There's a strong warning a couple chapters later, as we mentioned in Matthew 18 to those who harden their hearts and will not repent. Father, would you continue as the reformers modeled for us to be those who are constantly willing to reform when our eyes meet the scriptures and our hearts come to be convicted by your spirit. Would you bow our heads and our hearts to quickly repent and to draw near to you relationally that the Christ that we confess that we would be close to relationally. Father, would you keep us quickly uh, repenting of sins that come to our minds? Would you help us to seek those out, that we might live accurately what we believe to be true? Father, grant us grace in the uh, hours and the days to come. Grant us grace as we sing uh, this next song together uh, in worship to you with our brothers and sisters, confessing Christ and desiring to live with integrity. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.